this morning's gospel reading is from uh, John chapter 9 and the first seven verses. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So good morning everyone. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rosie and I am part of the uh, preachers and leadership team here at Christchurch. Um, and this morning I'm going to be um, talking about the sixth sign in the Gospel of John. I've also just bought loads of books just because I want you to think that I'm really holy this morning. So has that worked? Yeah, great, thank you. Approval, check. Um, so I want to set the scene um, for this passage this morning because it takes place um, during something called the Feast of Tabernacles, which is one of three major feasts um, that the Jews would have celebrated at the time. So let's go back and have a little bit of a look at this feast and hopefully it will give us a slightly deeper understanding of the context of this passage. So the Feast of Tabernacles took place over seven days and everyone would get together to come and celebrate. And every morning of the seven days, a procession of priests came down from the temple to the pool of Siloam and he would draw water from the pool. And because this water came from a spring, it was considered to be living water and it was used for ritual purposes such as cleansing or part of ceremonies. And once the priest had drawn the water, they would go and they would pour it onto the altar of sacrifice. On the first of the seven days, the people would gather in this large court of the women, and at dusk, four huge lampstands located in the court would be lit. And they would burn throughout the night. And Jewish writing describes this light as being so bright that it illuminated most of the city. So Jesus knew that this festival was taking place and he used the various rituals to demonstrate that he was Messiah. So according to the Gospel of John, we're told that midway through the festival, Jesus begins to teach the people in the temple. So this is about John 7 uh, uh, verse 14. Then on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's John 7, 37 to 38. 
Now, the people were really shocked that Jesus said that because they've just seen the priest for seven days go and get the living water to take it up to the altar. It's a significant part of the ritual of this feast of tabernacles. And now Jesus is here proclaiming that he is the living water. He is demonstrating that he's God. And that upset a lot of Jewish people. We're then told that Jesus leaves the city and returns on the following day again to come and teach in the temple. And standing in the courts where only seven nights previous, the people had lit the four huge lampstands. It said that they contained like 120 pieces of wood or something crazy like that. They're massive. Jesus stands there and then he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. So that's in 8 verse 12. Jesus upsets the Jewish leaders so much during this time that they, we are told that they desired to or even tried to kill Jesus on three separate occasions just in these two chapters. So 7 verse 30 says, At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Again in 44, some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And then finally in 859, at this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I get the vibe that maybe they're not very happy at this point with Jesus. So that brings us to where we find ourselves today. Jesus leaves the temple and he sees a blind man. And as the disciples gather around this man, they ask the Lord, well, why is he blind? And Jesus answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, which is verse 3 of today's reading. He then spat on the ground, making a small amount of mud, anointed the eyes of the man, and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam, the exact pool that the priests had drawn water from for seven days. The man then washes his eyes, and he's able to see for the first time in his life. So now we've set the scene, let's just dig a bit deeper into this passage. So Jesus and the disciples come across this man, and the first questions the disciples ask reveals a lot about their traditional beliefs. Because they assume that there's a direct link between personal sin and personal suffering. Therefore, this man has obviously done something wrong, or his parents have done something wrong, because he's been born blind. There are many reasons why this is quite a problematic view. But it's not a viewpoint that we is a surprise. If we look back to the book of Job, there are chapters and chapters of Job's helpful friends trying to work out what he's done wrong because he's obviously done something really wrong for all this suffering that he's going through. And when God finally speaks, instead of giving Job any answers about why he's going through what he's going through, God reminds of him of his almighty power. In today's passage, Jesus says to the disciples that sin is not the reason for this man's blindness, but so that the power of God could be seen in him. I don't think that Jesus is saying here that this is the reason for all suffering ever. But in healing the man, he's able to teach us something and bring glory to God. 
Now, I realize I'm treading a really close line to the topic of why does suffering happen if God is almighty and all-loving. And it's not something that I'm going to discuss today because it's massive and we'd just be here for hours. I mean, we can be here for hours if you want, but I think you've probably got other things to do today. It's a really, really challenging topic and it's one that's really emotive. But if it is something that you want to explore further, I'd like to just recommend this book. Um, he's written by, it's written by a smarter guy than me. His name is Pete Gregg, um, and it's called God on Mute. And it just delves really well into the topic of unanswered prayer and suffering. So if it's something that would be helpful for you to read, please recommend this book. And you can see he takes a long time to discuss it. And I don't think he even gets to the answer anyway at the end of it. <laughs> he might do, I don't know. But it's massive, and it's really hard, and it's just something that, you know, read his book, it's great. I sold it really well then, didn't I? You see, God is not a moral vending machine. It's not like the more good we put in, then the more good we get out, or vice versa. Ideologies such as karma, where people believe that others will get what's coming to them, be it good or be it bad. And it's a normal human thought process. You know, at the end, we watch the end of movies, like at the end of Bonds. Anyone seen that recently? And you, you're like, yeah, the bad guy got what was coming to him. But that's not how it works in the economy of God. We know that from our daily lives that sadly just bad things happen to people regardless how good we think them to be. Suffering can happen as a direct action of another person's actions. But sometimes bad things can just happen with no explanation than it just being a feature of the fallen world in which we live. And just as God is not a moral vending machine, he's also not a healing vending machine. If he took suffering away whenever we asked him to, I know that I would follow him out of comfort and convenience, not out of love and devotion. Recently, I've been reading uh, a book board called um, It's Not Supposed to Be This Way uh, by Lisa Tykehurst. I think that's how you say her name. And it speaks of her own suffering of, um, through health and the breakdown of her marriage. And the tagline of this book is Finding Unexpected Strength When You Find Disappointments Leave You Shattered. There's so many quotes and stories that I could pull from this book, but I just wanted to share one story that particularly stuck with me. So Lisa ends up being rushed to hospital with excruciating pain in her stomach. She's praying and praying and praying that God will take this pain away from her, but he doesn't. And the doctors do endless amounts of tests, but they can't find out what's wrong with her. But because of the amount of pain that she's in, they keep her in hospital. And finally, when they can't think of any more tests to do, they try just one last thing. And they find that her colon was in a pretty bad way and is in danger of rupturing, which if you know anything about medicine, it's not a good thing to happen. If it had done so, she would have been out of pain, but then she would have probably died from sepsis. What she realized during this time that God wasn't ignoring her cries to take the pain away. She believes that he was stood there and he longed to take that pain away, but he knew that it wasn't the right thing to do for her in that moment because it would have made things so much worse for her in the long run. You see, her stomach hadn't been 
good for a while, but it had never been bad enough for her to seek help. But this time, the pain was so bad that she couldn't ignore the problem anymore. When I read this story, I was experiencing my own health challenges, and I was feeling quite angry with God, if I'm honest. I was really angry that he'd let me experience what I'd experienced. Why couldn't I have my miracle? We've read about miracles for weeks during this sermon topic, and there are so many miracles in the Bible. I'd seen all this, and I knew all this. And because of that, I felt like I'd started to build a wall up to protect myself. But in that moment, when I read this story, I felt seen by God. And that wall that I'd started to build just cracked a little bit. Sometimes when we're suffering, um, we cling to God and we dig deeper into him. But I had gone way past that point. I didn't want to let God in because I felt like he'd really let me down. Lisa, in her book, poses this question, what if disappointment is really the exact appointment your soul needs to be radically encounter God? She says, to let my feelings be the only voice will rob my soul of healing's perspective with which God wants to comfort me and carry me forward. My feelings and faith will almost certainly come in conflict with each other. To wrestle well means acknowledging my feelings, but moving forward, letting my faith lead the way. Just as Jesus gave sight back to the blind man, I felt, felt in that moment that Jesus had restored my sight back to him. My suffering was making me blind to God. God hadn't let me down during this time. He was there with me the whole time, but I was too blind to see it. And if you're feeling like that today, God wants you to know that he is here. To trust God is to trust his timings. To trust God is to trust his way. God loves me too much to answer my prayers at any other time than in the right time and in any other way than in the right way. Now, when we're in the midst of suffering, we often know all these things. And sometimes people say them to them, but they're not always the most helpful things at that time when you're in the darkness of suffering. And I don't want to tread on Veronica's toes too much because she's preaching on um, the rising of Lazarus next week. But in that story, Jesus sees Mary's pain and he weeps. He doesn't tell her, well, you know theology, you should know this, or try and just smooth it over. He feels her pain, and it hurts him too. And I know that there are things that we as a church and people here today that are going through that frankly just hurt. But we can trust that God is with us, and he will not leave us to deal with it on our own. In this passage, John describes the exact way that Jesus heals the man, which I've always found a little bit gross and a little bit weird. Why is it important that Jesus spits on the ground and heals the man? Well, I think it demonstrates two things. Firstly, it echoes of Genesis 2-7, where God formed man from the dust on the ground. Jesus is showing us that he knows exactly what the creator did to form us and uses the same technique to heal the man, again showing that he is God. 
Secondly, I wonder if um, the Jews, if the Jews had thought that this man had sinned, and therefore he deserved to be blind, they may well have spat at him in disgust as they went past. And if that was the case, and spit had become to him a symbol of his sin and his separation from God. And then Jesus uses the same technique to give him sight, and more sight than the people who had possibly been spitting at him had ever had, because his eyes were opened to the truth of who Jesus was. While the man was blind, he was living in darkness, and now he sees the light. And the people have just been celebrating a festival which involves so much light that it illuminates the city of Jerusalem. Jesus has been speaking about how he is the light of the world, and then we see him bringing light into darkness. But yet there are people who still don't see it. The theme of light and darkness is one that you can spot all the way throughout John's Gospel. And one of my favorite verses is John 1, verse 5. And it says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I love this time of year. Um, even though it's getting all dark early, you have the brightness of fireworks and bonfires. And it was amazing last night when we were watching the fireworks, just how the sky was illuminated with these lovely pops of color. Embrace yourself, I'm going to mention the C word, because then you have Christmas lights. The light seems so much brighter when all around us is darkness. And light to me feels like hope. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep, a darkness a light has dawned. We often hear that verse at Christmas when we look to the birth of Jesus. He is our hope, the light of the world, the light that darkness could never extinguish, even in death. And if you want to go back and look at a great sermon on light, Anna did one um, during lockdown, which you can find on our Facebook page where you can find all our sermons. So do go and check that out. Jesus is the light of the world. He is our hope. He has won the victory. And even in the darkest of times, I believe there is always some small light to be found. It might be really, really tiny, but it's there. After the man has his eyes covered in, with the mud, he's sent to the pool of Siloam. And Siloam is the Hebrew word that means to be sent or to be commissioned. The Greek word for apostle or apostleship is the closest meaning. So the man washes in the pool of apostleship and then is healed. Just as a finish, I want to just pose some questions um, just maybe to think about that might be helpful. As followers of Jesus today, do we need to refocus our perspective? Have we been blind because our focus has been elsewhere instead of on God? Are there areas where we need God to ask God to give us his eyes rather than the world's eyes? Uh, I'm going to invite the band back up 
um, and they're going to play. Um, and in a moment, I'm going to read a poem that I found really helpful on light and darkness. Um, but I just really want to encourage you, if, if something that I've said um, today has stirred something within you, if you feel like you um, want to come to God and lay some things at his feet, or just, just know his presence again, um, there's going to be a wonderful prayer um, ministry team are going to be at the back um, of church, just where the painting is, like in the back corner over there. So please do feel free to just go and pray over there. Or if you're not comfortable, just poke someone next to you um, and say, actually, could you just pray for me? So I'm going to read this poem now. Um, it's from, can you tell it work in the book trade? Like advertising lots of books today. Um, so it's from this book called My Heart Cries Out. Um, and it has just such a beautiful picture um, of the northern lights lighting up the sky behind it. Sorry, I should be doing that so you guys can see too. Um, so it's called Light and Darkness. Light and Darkness, there in the garden. Light and darkness, there at the flood. Light and darkness, there in Egypt. Light and darkness, there at the Red Sea. Light and darkness, there at Sinai. Light and darkness, there in the wilderness. Light and darkness, there on the shores of the Jordan. Light and darkness, battle in the promised land. Light and darkness, in kings and judges. Light and darkness, in the struggle of the prophets. Light and darkness, at the birth of Jesus. Light and darkness, in the days of the Messiah. Light and darkness, in the challenges of the church. Light and darkness in the heart of everyone. Light and darkness in the great war. Light and darkness from beginning to end. The light and darkness battle will end. The true light has come. The true light has won an eternal victory. The true light has promised to come once again. The true light will welcome us to that home where light shine will shine without darkness forever. <laughs>